Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. King Hezekiah of Judah, the great reformer, had placed his trust in Yahweh and set his heart to be like his ancestor David. But now, the mighty lord of the Assyrian Empire has declared his purpose to utterly destroy Hezekiah's kingdom from the face of the earth, and Hezekiah is understandably shaken. Let's see what happens. So let's kind of recap where we were last week from 2 Kings chapter 18. Hezekiah takes the throne after serving a time of co-regency with his father Ahaz and having to enforce some of his father's policies. But he was a man who was very, very different from his father. Ahaz was a, he was a heretic. He was an apostate. He was an idolater. He was a, uh, he was a king that God reviled. Everything that Ahab was to Israel, Ahaz was to Judah. Actually introducing into the worship, to, to, to replace the worship of Jehovah, introducing idolatry of a kind that had not been experienced before in Judah, including introducing child sacrifice. Now you think, oh, everybody would be revolted at that. Not so. Not so. There was something very primitive about that whole ritual and that whole attitude and idea. Just, I mean, after all, you know, we've got, we've got a story like that in our heritage. Didn't God call on Abraham to offer up Isaac? Oh, yeah, he rescued him there at the end. But, I mean, isn't there that issue of child... I mean, that that was always lurking in the background. What is there about child sacrifice? Because when you get desperate, what are you willing to give up? To show the powers that be that... Okay, this is what I'll do. This This is where I will compromise with you. But everything... The whole issue of idolatry... Understand something. The whole issue of idolatry is humanism. Idolatry is humanism. It's supernaturalistic humanism. It's not like the naturalistic humanism that we have in our present day. It's supernaturalistic humanism. It is, there is a belief in other powers beyond natural powers, but idolatry is, the essence of idolatry is man controlling the powers that control the universe. That's what idolatry is about. Finding a way, finding a method, finding a means whereby we can gain power over the powers of the universe. (coughs) And child sacrifice was the ultimate in that. You sacrifice one of your children, then that is... Why did they do that? Power. (coughs) Ultimately power. And Ahaz introduced that concept. 
Remember what we talked about early on about the power of precedent. And every time you move the bar a step toward wickedness so that a form of wickedness becomes tolerable in a society, then everything starts being compared with that. Well, this is worse than that. This is worse. Than, well, we're, we're not as bad as that. And so everything gets started, be, is compared with that. Hezekiah is an extraordinary man when he came up, when he came to the throne. And when he began to exercise soul rule and authority over the kingdom of Judah, he brought in reform of a kind that had never been seen in that nation since the days of Solomon. Solomon brought idols into Judah. Solomon brought idolatry into Israel and made the toleration of idolatry acceptable so long as it's just the, just the pagans that do it. Just so long as it's the non-Israelites that do it. But we're, we're, we will tolerate idols so long as it's just not us doing it. But then, late in his life, Solomon became one of those who began doing it. Just to show his appreciation for, you know, the religious point of views of his wives. Many, many wives. Since those days, there had been a swing of, there had been a movement of religious self-independence in the hearts of the Israelites so that there was not a, a one place of worship that was the emblem of the one unseen God but there were hundreds of places of worship say what's wrong with that in our day under our dispensation in which Jesus Christ has told us that we are living in the age of the spirit in which those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's, it's not about this mountain or that mountain. It is to be in spirit and in truth. Why? Because he has given to his people the Holy Spirit and we, our bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temples in which God dwells. And so that way we have communication with him everywhere and wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, there is he in our midst. That is the age in which we live, but that was not the age in which they lived. And understand the temple and the altar and the Ark of the Covenant and all of the emblems, all of the, the golden lampstand, everything was the emblem of Christ. And to go every other place means that you don't have to come to Christ. We live in that day too, by the way. In which we have supposedly evangelical Christians now saying, well, you don't actually have to come to Christ. And we, and we are intimidated by the challenge. Of, do, do I actually have to believe in Jesus to be saved? And the insinuation is, well... How would you respond to that? You mean that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell? 
How would you respond to that? How about this? If you don't believe in hell, what difference does that make to you what I believe? If there is no hell, or if everybody is going to go to heaven who wants to, just because they want to, what difference does it make whether I believe that you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved? What's it to you? Why does that intimidate you? Why does that thought worry you? Why does that thought bother you? Could it be the thought that in your heart of hearts you know it's the truth and you don't want to accept it? Otherwise, what difference does it make? I'm not going to force you to go to heaven and I'm not going to make you go to hell. It's not up to me. Well, you think God, well, just saying what the Bible says. I'm just saying what Jesus said. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Hezekiah was absolutely extraordinary in which he came in with a set of convictions and he held to them. How he got them, we don't really know. How he came by them in a totally idolatrous age that was led by his father, we don't know. But his rebellion against his father was to go, was to become a full-fledged, fully committed believer in the Lord Jehovah God, one God over heaven and earth. And he instituted reforms which brought trouble. That's where we need to look at it, right here. Hezekiah is pleasing God. And what happens? God brings trouble into his world. See, that's kind of the kind of way that we look at it. Here I was. God, I thought I was pleasing you. I was doing what you wanted. And here you, we, we're under attack by the Klingons. Now, is that how you look at this when, when we're reading the story? Let's take a different perspective. Let's take the perspective the writer of kings you do realize that the Assyrians who came in that conquered the kingdom of Israel devastated that land and exiled the Israelites deported them to far flung places those same Assyrians were ready to do that to the Judeans you do understand that right and they had a ticket to do that from the Lord Jehovah God. God was ready to let the axe fall on Judah as well as Israel. They were in that bad a shape. But God, who is rich in mercy and who is long-suffering, raised up a man. that would so change the character of a generation that God would back off from judgment and say, I'm going to put this man between <coughs> his people and my judgment. Hezekiah was born for war, just as David was. He was very much like his ancestor David. 
Although David was one who was uh, born for primarily for offensive warfare, Hezekiah was born for defensive warfare, but both of them were men who were born for war. And Hezekiah was an extraordinarily intelligent, intuitive, strong, capable leader. He didn't waver. He didn't vacillate. One excusable exception. He did not back off of his convictions. Everybody said, well, you know, we need to re... The, the Assyrians are coming. Peace, people need a place to pray and offer sacrifices. We need to reinstate the high places. Hezekiah said, no way. High places are gone. I am not letting them come back. And this was difficult because the high places were traditional by now. They were ingrained. You go to the high place, you, you go... That, I mean, that, that's how you go to church. I mean, everybody does that. Nobody has to go to Jerusalem. Everybody just goes to the high place. That's what we do in times of emergency. We go to the high place and we offer sacrifices to God there. You're not authorized to offer the sacrifices to God in the high places. The sacrifices are of Jesus Christ. And you're not authorized to take his name on your own. You take his name on the way that he has authorized it. He did not back off. He did not reinstitute those, even though... And the Assyrians used that as a propaganda weapon against the Judeans who say, you know, Hezekiah, don't trust him. Hezekiah has made God mad. He has demolished those high places. He's demolished those high places of Jehovah. He's made God mad. He's taken away all the places where you used to worship the Lord God. Clever. Because that's what many of the people thought. The Rabshakeh, who was basically his formal position, that's, that's by the way, is a title. That's not a, pr a proper name. The Rabshakeh of Sennacherib basically means his cupbearer. He was used, he was the personal emissary, probably used because of his linguistic skills. He knew the language of the Hebrews. <laughs> he knew the Hebrew language and he knew their culture. He was educated, he studied up. And one of the, one of the things about the Assyrians, they were masters of war. They were a warlike, they were, they were warlike people, but they were not savages. They were cruel, they were ruthless, but they were highly civilized and sophisticated in their war. And one of the things, one of the rules of war that they followed expertly was know your enemy. Know your enemy. And they studied up on them. And the speech that is given by the Rabshakeh before the walls of Jerusalem where everybody could hear and the emissaries of Hezekiah said, talk to us. You know, you're not, you're not negotiating with the people on the wall. You're, you're, you're negotiating with the emissaries of the king. Talk to us. The Rabshakeh, knowing what he's doing, stands out in a place where he can be heard by everybody on the wall and say, do you think that they don't want to hear what's going to happen to them if their king does not surrender their city? But if you surrender now, you can all go home you can all eat food from your own storehouse. Your children can play in your own yard until we come 
and take you to a really nice place far away from here. Oh, and it's a beautiful land. You'll love it. A couple of thousand years later, it's what they told the Jews also when they said, get on the train, we're going to take you to a nice place. It's a wonderful camp. And as they were taken to camps, with the German words written over the top, Arbeit macht Freiheit. Work makes you free. Camps where the full intended purpose was to see these Jews work themselves to death, but that wasn't fast enough. So they instituted other measures. Yeah, that's how the Assyrians worked. Very good, very clever propaganda, pacify the people, institute terror and then offer them a lie that is the devil incarnate right here we saw the Rabshak, he's very very good the whole idea, because why, why all of this, why all this talk, why all this talk, why not just attack, well because Sennacherib was kind of busy at this point First of all, the, the Judean town of Lachish, the Judean city of Lachish, was putting up a pretty good fight. The Jews weren't just laying down and letting the Assyrians roll over them. Even after all of the terror and all of the heart, Hezekiah had prepared his people for war, and he had done it well. And he had some good generals in charge of his fortress cities, and Lachish was the strongest one. And Sennacherib had to take Lachish before he could do anything else because otherwise he would have at his rear an enemy who could launch attacks from, on him and then retreat back into their fortress. And so he has to take care of Lachish. Lachish sits right on the road of conquest, not only for Judah, but for Egypt as well. Sennacherib has to take out Lachish, and Lachish isn't going down easy. And it's taking a lot of time and it's making Sennacherib really irritated. Archaeologists have discovered, they have done a great deal of digging here, and they found that the Assyrians built a siege ramp to take the wall. They couldn't knock down the wall, so they, were, they began building a very, with very sophisticated engineering, a siege ramp. They were building basically a highway up to and over the wall. You know what the Jews on the other side did? They started building a counter siege ramp. That would be higher and bigger and something that they and be, be, provide another obstacle for the Assyrians. Ultimately it was no to no avail. Lachish fell. All of the prayers all of the prayers of righteous Hezekiah did not keep Lachish from falling <clears throat> and Lachish was a key city. So Lachish was about to fall. That's a good deal of cost to Sennacherib, which made him just really even more mad. And then there is word of an attack from the southern fortified city of Libna. 
So now Sennacherib has to send a detachment to go down and handle that issue. As a matter of fact, Sennacherib has to go himself and handle that issue at Libna. In the process of this, Hezekiah, who had prayed that God would bring deliverance and sent a word to Isaiah the prophet, help us. This is in chapter 19. They, and I, Hezekiah's messengers to Isaiah said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth. There's no strength to bring them forth. That's a desperate time. It may be that Yahweh your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. You see, Hezekiah is surrounded. He can't come out. He can't attack without exposing his force. And so he's, he's locked up inside Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a very difficult city to take. Only fell one time, and that's because of internal weakness. That was in a war with Israel. Basically, there was somebody inside that let him in. Otherwise, Jerusalem is strong. It's, it's not going to be an easy city to take either. But no place is impregnable. Not to somebody who's determined and has the resources like Assyria has. Hezekiah knows this. And, and Sennacherib, on the monument that he made of this campaign in Judah, extolled his great victory over Lachish, and then writes of Hezekiah, I shut him up in his palace like a bird in a cage. Mentions his name. On the stele erected in the city of Nineveh. You know what he conspicuously leaves out of that story? He conspicuously leaves out the phrase, and I conquered Jerusalem. You know why? Because he didn't conquer Jerusalem. Interesting. He beat everybody else that Hezekiah sent, but he couldn't crack Jerusalem. What happened? Let's see. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord. Isaiah already had the word. You think Isaiah hadn't been praying? <laughs> no, you know he had. But uh, he didn't need, he already had the word. God, you think God was not paying attention? God was paying attention. You know why God was paying attention? Because he had a man in the palace who was a man with more of a heart for God than anybody had had in that palace since David was in that palace. And God is listening to his people. Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you've heard. Don't let the devil get in your head. That's where he lives, you know. Let me remind you that the power of the devil, the power of every demon, which God has given to them and commissioned to Satan and to his demons, is the lie. And to the extent 
that he can get us to believe the lie. To that extent, he has a foothold in us. This is what the Rabshakeh is doing. Now, the lie never comes without a coating of truth, a varnish of truth. There's always that bit of truth. But the heart of the truth that he tells is a lie. So don't let him get in your head. Don't believe the lie. And if you're worried about which part is the lie, don't believe any of it. That way you can avoid the rush. Do not be afraid because of the words you've heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. You know what's happening here? God says, I'm taking your problem as mine. Your issue is my issue. By attacking you, they're attacking me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor, return to his own land. I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's the prophecy. He's going to hear a rumor. He's going to return to his own land. He's going to fall by the sword in his own land. About this time, Sennacherib gets this report from Libna. He says, I've got to go deal with that issue. And many of the forces that are sitting in front of Jerusalem withdraw. And it looks like, it looks like the Assyrians are pulling out and it looks like the word of Isaiah the prophet has come true for us already. And the devil has an answer for it. He sent messengers to Hezekiah again, saying, verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let the God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? He goes on and reads the list. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. How are you feeling at this point? For a moment you had this flutter of hope because you saw the banners of the Assyrian army pulling out. You could see that over the, over the mountains that surround Jerusalem and you could see those Assyrian banners pulling out and the, and the watchfires at night were not so many, they're so numerous. The glow did not illuminate all of the hills around Jerusalem. And for a moment you thought, this is it. This is our deliverance. And then you hear this word. No, we haven't left. We'll deal with this nuisance of a situation and we're going to be back and we're going to take you down. This is where a lot of people fall apart. They think that they had, they think that they had laid hold of faith. They think that they're about to get delivered. And then 
a whole other wave comes in. And there's the temptation to say, I believed God for nothing. I was wrong. I missed it. Where did I miss God's word? I thought I understood God. I thought I had a word from God. What's happened? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love that. It's not like Hezekiah didn't know that God already knew what was in that letter. But I love that. Folks, God didn't need to, God didn't need for him to do that, but Hezekiah needed to do that. And you and I need to do that. When we are in that kind of a pinch and when we are under that kind of pressure, when we are under that kind of attack, we need to take that and we need to spread it before the Lord. I want you to know I've gotten that kind of letter. And I followed the example of Hezekiah and I spread it before the Lord. God, you see this? Yeah. How do you know if the citadel you're praying for is like Lachish or Jerusalem? Because he was praying for Lachish and it fell. Uh -huh. That seems to be, that's a dilemma. Lachish is no longer there. Lachish has fallen. But now, you understand Jerusalem is basically, Jerusalem. if Jerusalem falls, there is no more Judah. Lachish falls, and that's a strategic loss. Jerusalem falls, there is no more Judah. That's it. There is no more Judah, there is no more house of David, there is no more promise of God to the house of David. That's, and remember, that's crucial to everything that's going on here. So, we keep on. He spreads before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Look at that confession. You have made heaven and earth. Go back to the original confession. Go back to basics. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Start with Genesis 1. God, you're, you're the only God that there is. Keep on reading. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Notice what he says. He, say, not, he doesn't say, to mock us, your people. He said, to mock the living God. Why does he pray that? Well, one of the reasons, I believe, is that he knows that his people don't really have that much to brag about. He has dragged his people kicking and screaming back to the covenant. And not everybody's been happy with that change. He says, Lord, they've mocked your name. 
truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the world of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What a prayer. See, that's where Hezekiah's heart is. When Sennacherib first showed up, Hezekiah faltered. He reverted to the same policy, the same failed policies that his predecessors had used. Send a bribe. And Sennacherib took the bribe and said, I'm going to destroy you anyway. You know why? Because the devil is a liar. You expect honor from Satan. So Hezekiah got desperate in his moment of faltering. It was a test. And in one moment, he failed. He put it this way, using this weak analogy. He blew the pop quiz. But he passed the test. And he laid that before the Lord. And it's all on God. And look at what the word comes. Verse 20. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Now that ought to be enough. That ought to be enough. And it is. But that's not all it gives. This is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. What follows is a song. It is written in Hebrew in the traditional meter and layout of a lament such as you have in the book of Lamentations. That's kind of what we would think of in terms of a funeral dirge. So I want you to think of, of a, uh, of a, just a funeral dirge, a funeral march. You know, dum dum da dum dum da dum da dum. You know, think, think that kind of a. This is the attitude. This is the mood. But the words are not a lament. The words are in your face. The words are trash talk. The words are a taunt. Especially considering that the enemy is still out there. The enemy is fully armed. The the enemy is in full strength in front of you, facing you. And this is what God comes out and says. In your face, Sennacherib. Look at what he says. And the first word knocked me over. The first verse of this knocks me over. Look at what it says. This is the word... The Lord has spoken concerning Sennacherib. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem. That knocks me over. That stuns me. These are the words that the Lord is writing. And directed toward Sennacherib. And says... She despises you. She scorns you. 
Who does? The virgin daughter of Zion. By the way, that in, in our construction, that that phrase, daughter of Zion, that's not a possessive. That's not a that of Zion. That's not a genitive of possession. That is the genitive of identity, which would be another way of saying the virgin daughter who is Zion. <coughs> The daughter who is Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the grammatical meaning of that phrase. Just to clear that up, make sure we understand what we're talking about. So this is not Zion's daughter. This is the daughter who is Zion. This is not Jerusalem's daughter. This is the daughter who is Jerusalem's. So whose daughter is it? Whose daughter is Zion? Zion is the daughter of whom? The Lord Jehovah God. The daughter of Yahweh. Now what does he say about Zion? What does he say about Jerusalem? What is the character of Zion? The virgin daughter. Do you understand the grace in all of that? Jerusalem. Zion was no virgin. Really. Spiritually. Jerusalem was not a virgin. Jerusalem was a whore. Jerusalem had brought in to her midst, even into the very temple environment itself, the worship of false gods, the worship of idols, the worship of blasphemies had been brought into the temple itself. Hezekiah's reforms eliminated those. You know what God has said? God has said, you're not a reformed girl. You are my virgin daughter. Do you understand the grace in that? The fullness of the forgiveness? The fullness of the restoration? How God has looked and seen. You're pure. You are pure. And I will not let anyone take away your purity from you. Not this Sennacherib guy, no sir. The virgin daughter of Zion says, I despise you. I scorn you. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Verse 22. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. That, by the way, is authentic Isaiah. That is Isaiah all the way. Isaiah, the heart of his message was the identity of God as the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you've said with my many chariots I've gone up to the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon I felt its tallest trees its choicest cypresses I entered its farthest lodging place its most fruitful forest I dug wells drank foreign waters I dried up the, with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt lays out all of his boasts and you know what you could find newspaper clippings of that time if they had newspapers in that time, which they didn't, but you know, I mean, you, you don't understand any analogy there. You could find newspaper clippings and, and plenty of newsreel footage to back all of that up. There's, that could be documented. He, he's done all of that. Matter of fact, that's not denied. But verse 26 says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? You remember Jonah? 
back in the days of Jeroboam II, the false golden age, the fool's golden age of Israel. Jonah the prophet was around. And the book of Jonah tells of how God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach to that great city, which was so corrupt that God was getting ready to have to destroy. That's how wicked these Klingons had become. That God was ready to get rid of them right then and there. Here's the problem. God wasn't done with them yet. So God sent one of his prophets to go preach to them a message of judgment. And you know what happened? They listened to it and they repented just enough to keep the hand of God from striking them down. Why was, and Jonah was upset. Why was he upset? Because he had such success preaching? Because he didn't want to see Assyria and Nineveh survive. But God had a plan for them. And God's plan was to use them as a rod of judgment and of chastening for his own people as well as other peoples in the world. And God says, I, I made you. I had a reason for you being where you were. I had a reason for your coming to power. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old, but I now bring to pass that you should turn fortify cities into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. And because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will do just what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians treated their captives, especially the, the nobility of the cities. They made them like cattle. And they would put hooks in their nose and chains around their neck and they would lead them out literally by the nose, captive, humiliating them. Look at what God says. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way you came. This is the message that was sent back out to the Rabshaka. And then Isaiah turns back to Hezekiah and says, this shall be a sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs of the same. In the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Isaiah looks beyond the present moment. First of all, looks to the, uh, to the aftermath. How can we be secure? The Assyrians go away, but how do we know that they're not going to be back? Here's going to be your sign. Yeah, it's going to be tough the first couple of years. It's going to be tough because the land is devastated. The land has been laid waste. But it's not going to take forever to recover. The third year, you're going to be planting crops and eating eating crops rather than just the stuff that just grows up of itself. You're actually going to be back and your economy is going to be getting back to normal. Give it three years. And then he looks forward even to that. You notice what he calls those in Jerusalem? 
calls them a remnant. Isaiah is looking further than that. That message of hope is going to be real significant because of what's going to come up next. But he says, by the way, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. It's not, he's not even going to make an attack on us. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Notice he said, it doesn't say my servant Hezekiah. Why? He doesn't have to make a promise of covenant with Hezekiah. Hezekiah is keeping covenant that he had made with David. The next part, you know what's funny about the next part? It's anticlimactic. I mean, we've been expecting this... All of, this, is, this is what we expect. I mean, it just gets there. And so the writer of Kings, you know what the least important thing is about this whole story? God slew the Assyrians. That's the least important thing about the story. Look what he said. He takes care of it in, in two verses, three verses. And that night the angel of the Lord went out, same angel of the Lord, who went out in Egypt and struck down the firstborn. Same angel of the Lord who during the later days of David and chastising David for his pride went out and struck down Israelites by the scores in a plague. That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Probably at least half of Sennacherib's army. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these are all dead bodies. Now it doesn't say where they all were. They may not have all been in front of Jerusalem. They may have been here. I bet it's just throughout, throughout the army of Sennacherib, he's got overnight 185,000 casualties with no no apparent reason other than the fact that some sudden plague just swept through. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home and stayed in Nineveh. He didn't leave. He didn't remount his uh, campaign against Judah. And as he was worshiping in the house, by the way, some years passed, it didn't, you know, again, all of this the writer of Kings treats this very perfunctorily because this is the least important part of this story. Just needed to wrap up this thing. By the way, as he was uh, worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Nisroch had his son reign in his place. And we're not told all the ins and outs in that. Apparently, though, we know from other histories that uh, he had appointed Asarhaddon, who was the younger son, to be his successor. And his older sons didn't appreciate it very much and assassinated him. In the house of Nisroch, his God. You know what? The demons that you serve will lie to you too. And the demon that Sennacherib served finally lied to him and said, Oh, you're safe here. 
Verse chapter 20. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah and the prophet and the son of Amos came and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, you shall die, you shall not recover. This actually happened. It says in those days, that's a general statement. This actually happened before the Assyrian siege. There is a reason why this is given as an epilogue and not in its chronological place. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back. Say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And on the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. The Assyrians were threatening. And all of a sudden, Hezekiah comes down with a disease from which God says, you are not going to recover. How devastating could that be? You know what, you know what that means? Hezekiah goes, we're lost. All of his reforms are for nothing. Everything is, everything's down the tubes, and Hezekiah has no heir. He said, God, this is not the time. And so he turns his face to the wall and he prays and he weeps bitterly. And God hears his prayer and answers him. So I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs. Let them take it, lay it on the boil that he may recover. Now, that was not the therapy. They go, you've got some scholars who are talking about all the medicinal uses of figs and, of, and all of that. You know, it's just, but it's, the point of it is not that the figs brought the healing. The point of it is that the figs were, a, were an emblem. The poultice of figs was an emblem. God is dealing with this. God is treating this. Put this on it. It's like Jesus putting the mud on the eyes of the blind man. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up from the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign, that the Lord shall do the thing he's promised, and the shadow shall go forward ten steps, or back ten steps, and answered, it's all an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down the steps of Ahaz. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah didn't show them. Why would he do that? Pride? Why else? I think so. Why else? Any other possibilities? Curry favor. Curry favor. See, here's something. Merodach Baladan, this is the king who had (coughs) kept Assyria off balance by attacking from the east. 
and by rebelling in the east and kept Assyria occupied there for a while. And then the Assyrians beat them back, but they're kind of starting to on the comeback course. And so maybe, I, maybe Hezekiah is also saying, well, you know, maybe we can, we can bring these guys in as allies. And I, here's kind of, I can show them, yeah, we might be able to do business. Here are my assets. This is what I've got. This is what I might be able to have to pay if, if you might, guys might want to send some, some troops this way. He's starting to think like the humanist that is going to slip up in a little while and try to offer Sennacherib a bribe to keep him at bay. He hasn't yet paid that price. He sees all this, okay, we've built up some strength. We've, we've had some economic strength. We've got some military strength. Here's, here's my household. Here's what all of this is. Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what do these men say? For where do they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah said, they've seen everything in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses. I didn't show them. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. You showed it to Babylon, Babylon's going to come get it. They shall be eunuchs. Your, your, some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you've spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Hezekiah was a great man, but he wasn't perfect. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah on his might, how he made the pool and the conduit that brought water to the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. Folks, let me just give you what we've got here. The re can you see the reason why this story was brought as the epilogue to the, to the Hezekiah story and not in its chronological place? The writer of Kings did not want us to see the victory of God against the Assyrians as being the climax to the story of Hezekiah. He wanted us to understand what we've done is we have delayed the judgment. But the judgment's still going to come. And it won't be in this generation. A man of character and conviction coming to place in leadership helped delay the judgment for a generation. But you need to understand when he says these words, Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. If you don't already know something about Manasseh, then a cold chill needs to run through your spine because here's the point. We're only one generation away from apostasy, ever. We're only one generation away from turning away and forfeiting all of our blessing. Pray for your children. And pray for your children's children. I'm done for today.
This is one of the few stories in the Book of Kings that has a satisfying ending. But even so, it still contains a hint of foreboding. How will Judah rebuild after the devastating invasion? And how will Hezekiah's reforms hold up? We'll find out in our next episode. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.